Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is my conversation with the writer Dubrovka Ugresic, a writer who's been living in exile since being accused of being a traitor, a heretic, and a witch during the Yugoslav wars of the early 1990s. Given that I live in a relatively small city in Portland, Oregon, it is a rarer opportunity than if I lived in New York or L.A. or Miami or Houston to interview authors touring for their books in translation. I was lucky to discover recently that open letter books had been sending their authors this way. I went to see Argentinian writer Rodrigo Frezan reading at Powell's, whose book The Invented Part, translated by Will Vanderheiden, just won the 2018 Best Translated Book Award. I learned about it too soon to have him on for an interview, but was ready to jump on the opportunity when I learned that Open Letter was sending Dubrovka Ugresic to Portland on her tour. So similar to my conversation with Dao Strom, where I interviewed her Vietnamese translator, Lee Thuy Nguyen, for the bonus archive, I also reached out to Dubrovka's longtime translator, Ellen Elias Bursich. In addition to having some great insights into Dubrovka's work and the joys and challenges of translating it, Ellen also worked as a translator for the War Crimes Tribunal of the former Yugoslavia in The Hague and offers her thoughts on translation and mistranslation in that fraught context. You can find this bonus material and about other ways to support the show at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Dubravka Ugresic. In 1981, Ugresic published her much-beloved patchwork novella Steffi Speck in the Jaws of Life, a book that juxtaposes the clichés and trite advice of stereotypical women's magazines with the genuine despair of the marginalized heroine. In 1988, Ugresic was the first woman to win the NIN Award, the highest literary honor of the former Yugoslavia, for her book, Fording the Stream of Consciousness. Dubravka Ugresic is also a literary scholar who has published articles and edited anthologies on the Russian avant-garde, 
written a scholarly book on Russian contemporary fiction and translated Russian writers from Boris Pilnyak to Daniel Harms. In 1991, when war broke out in Yugoslavia, Ugresic took a firm anti-war and anti-nationalist stand. She wrote critically about Croatian and Serbian nationalism and soon became a target of nationalist journalists, politicians, and fellow writers. Ostracized by the public and harassed by the media, accused of anti-patriotism and proclaimed not only a traitor and public enemy, but also a witch, Ugresic left Croatia in 1993. For the last two decades plus, she has lived in exile in Amsterdam and has taught in European and American universities, including Harvard and Columbia. She wrote about her experience of collective nationalist hysteria in her book, The Culture of Lies, which won the 1996 prize for best European book of essays. Since then, she has written one remarkable novel or essay collection after another from the Museum of Unconditional Surrender to Europe in Sepia, from Ministry of Pain to Thank You for Not Reading, from Baba Yaga Lays an Egg to the National Book Critics Circle finalist, Karaoke Culture. In 2016, Dubravka Ugresic won the Neustadt International Prize for Literature for her body of work, often called the American Nobel, whose past winners include Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Elizabeth Bishop, Octavia Paz, and Kamel Brathwaite, among many other literary luminaries. Susan Sontag called Ugresic a writer to follow and cherish. Helen Oyeyemi calls Ugresic a whistler in the dark, a thinker and storyteller with one foot in the absurd, another in the surreal, and the third foot elsewhere, just elsewhere. Mary Gateskill calls her affecting and elegant, a writer who writes with earthy grace. And Dubrovka is here today to talk to us about her two latest books, translated into English and both out from open letter books. The first is her novel, Fox, translated by Ellen Elias Bursich and David Williams, a book Kirkus calls brilliant and laugh out loud funny, and which Publishers Weekly calls an essential work an essential reading for writers and lovers of writing alike. And her second book out this year is American Fictionary, translated by Celia Hawksworth and Ellen Elias Bursich, which is an updated and revised version of her 1994 essay collection, Have a Nice Day, From the Balkan War to the American Dream. Essays written while she was living as a guest lecturer in Middletown, Connecticut, during the brutal sieges of Sarajevo, and the nationalist rhetoric of Milosevic, commenting on everyday life in America from the endless amounts of jogging to her obsession with public confession. Welcome to Between the Covers, Dubravka Ugresic. Thank you. So you described one of your earliest Yugoslavian novels, Steffi Speck, as a patchwork novel. Uh, partly this was a nod to the diminishment of women's work um, and art and also a way in which you juxtaposed high and low. But there are ways in which I feel like many of your novels, The Museum of Unconditional Surrender and also your latest, Fox, feel like patchwork novels in the sense that there are many different parts that get juxtaposed that feel very different, and we can see the seams between them. And I I wondered if you feel like this patchwork... uh, form is actually something that is is beyond Steffi Speck and is something that connects Fox back to some of those early books. 
Thank you. In fact, you are the first one who noticed that. I never thought about that because I was uh, somehow at, at the time when I was writing Steffi Speck in the Jaws of Life, which is, by the way, probably a wrong title. <laughs> I will explain that later. I wrongly translated title, yeah. <laughs> which I can explain later why. So, so I wanted to play with uh, with a so-called uh, woman's novel, women's novel, women's writing. Um, uh, at that time, it was very much in in fashion. You know, uh, a, a big theoretical talk about uh, about this division. I mean, what is male, what is female. So, so I took. Um, uh, the first thing which seemed to me sort of <laughs> historically natural that women uh, for ages they were like wasting their crea creativity on this handwork like making laces or sewing or so that was the most natural technique so i compared that and i used terminology from then existing probably those magazines for women they don't exist anymore now where you had those patterns that they, you could make your uh, clothes mm -hmm. at home with a sewing machine, and um, and I s sort of applied that terminology to a literary text, and it was at that time you would say probably experimental at that time, and also of course I was I was inspired with uh, with uh, Russian avant-garde uh, literary theory about how to make things, how to make literary test, uh, text. So making, in my case, was sort of sewing. <laughs> yeah. But now you reminded me, yes, that could be something which is basic, that although I wrote a novel with a proper plot, and that was fording the stream of consciousness, but what I like more is to confront different types of texts or differently, you know, uh, sort of colored or, um, or just to see how do they talk. And you have it, that procedure, you have it in Baba Yaga Laid an Egg, where I'm combining, there are three parts, uh, differently written, uh, about the same, and they talk in between. They enrich each other, definitely. So um, the same is, I would say, with Fox also, which doesn't have this proper novelistic plot, but it is more, although it could be fine, if you like riddles, then you would find a, a plot too. Yeah. So, so different parts, and they also talk. Well, it feels like Fox, in many ways, challenges the uh, notion of a novel or the form of the novel. So you talk about how it's not novelistic in many ways. Well, for one, it's it's in many it makes a nod to autofiction. There's this blurring between uh, whether the protagonist is you. It, the protagonist shares a lot of your biographical details, and then there's elements of metafiction also. And 
in the book. And some parts feel more like essay than novel. And then you juxtapose these uh, novel-like scenes with essay-like meditations or digressions. And then on top of that, there are parts that feel almost like we're reading scholarly or academic work. Um, in the U.S., this would be considered avant-garde or on the margins of the literary scene. And mm -hmm. I wondered if that's also true in, in Central Europe or whether there is a, uh, a stronger lineage of this sort of um, troubling of what the novel form is. I don't, I don't think that it is different in Europe because, because of global market, you know. And, in fact, market uh, speaks literary theory instead of real literary theory. So they like, uh, they like to define things, you know. And then it should be the opposite, because from literary theory, academic literary theory, it should go and be popularized in the market. But these days, somehow, we have the opposite. Market is dominant. And uh, then the second day, you will have in some conference about uh, some term, which was basically invented by the market. So hmm. market today tells you what is a proper novel you know, and what is not, what is experimental and what is not. And people also use those terms not knowing what do they, um, what do they mean. They try to help themselves in defining uh, literary work because literary theory, academic literary theory withdrew. Critics, they withdrew also because this is fight uh, with a certain winner, and the certain winner is is marketplace, mm. not the writer, not the critic. Um, so, so I think that what's going on is a certain populism <laughs> penetrated into that general talk about art, about literature, about culture, mm. um, uh, to be approachable by everybody. And this is the dream of the market, you know, so they want that. And we finished then uh, because of such, um, let's say, induced um, uh, thinking about, about culture, books, um, movies, we finish every year with 10 books which are read all, all over the world, <laughs> or 10 movies which are seen all, all over the world. Uh, so, uh, and we also, uh, what, we end up with standardization, you know, a certain standardization. Uh, and this is again, I think that booksellers, culture sellers uh, like that, because you can't sell dozens of different things. You can sell 10 of standardized things. Mm. I mean, I'm, we are, we are, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated issue yeah. to explain all of that. Um, but I insist on that, that my book is a novel, and full stop, it's a novel. So it's um, on reader and the critic to explain why 
and to try to explain why it is not. Yeah. Uh, comparing to what? That's a great question. To realistic novel, to avant-garde novel, to the novel of 50s or 60s, comparing to what? If we think of Fox as a, as a patchwork, the thread, one of the threads, if we think of the sewing metaphor, one of the threads that goes through the sections is literally the fox. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a different iteration of a fox in each section, and, and the fox signifies something differently. And the fox also has a mythology of being a shapeshifter. Um, so given that we have this thread that doesn't have a stable identity, um, and you go through this, the ways in which the fox is represented in various cultures and how in the West it's more often male and in the East it's more mm-hmm. often female. I was hoping maybe you could just share some of the mythopoetic uh, aspects of the fox that, that remain most in foreground in your mind. Of course, I was inspired uh, by the, the short story um, of Boris Pignac, uh, uh, a story about how stories are written. Um, and this is my dearest short story. And I liked very much um, uh, his thought that, in fact, Fox, uh, which is a symbol of betrayal and so on and so forth, could be also a totem of the writers. And if the spirit of the fox enters the kin of the man, that kin is going to be cursed. And writers are those cursed people. Um, So for the sake of art, they would, you know, they would cheat, they would steal, they would do nasty things, but also they bear the consequences, you know, and the consequences, foxes, (laughs) now we are, if we take this symbol as relevant for writers, uh, we should think always about uh, this pair, pair, not yeah. despair, but pair. Right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yes, first thing is that uh, it's a well-known character. These are the first novels about foxes in in. Um, uh, in Europe, in Germany, in France, and in Netherlands. Um, and that was always a teaser, a trickster, a liar, um, entertainer, always a male. Hmm. And there to, you know, to subvert, uh, like, notions and glory of politicians and priests and, you know, elite, elite. Mm-hmm. And um, like a person from from populistic teaser, okay. Uh, so that was the that was the uh, fox in a Western uh, imagery. Uh, but then, the more east you go, um, it becomes gender. I mean, gender is clear. It is female, even in the language. Let's say in Croatian language, uh, it is she, and in all Slavic languages, it is she, and um, and also in. Um, Far East, like Korean uh, uh, mythology, Japanese mythology, 
Chinese mythology, it is definitely she. It's a woman, and there are endless stories about a woman who transforms into a fox and the opposite, fox mm. into a woman. So this is the double identity. It also has um, um, some... Uh, it could be she's a messenger of in in Japan, let's say she's a messenger of a goddess Inari, uh, which is god goddess of fertility and um, and also could be um, could earn a status of of goddess. Uh, and it gets uh, the better the status, the more tails. Hmm. So it starts with one, but it can get three and five and seven and divine nine tails. This is already a goddess. But for that, Fox has to wait a thousand years for that status. Uh, she also is a messenger in between two worlds, world of dead and world of living. Um, <clears throat> she could do many tricks. Uh, she could. She's enchanter, seducer, uh, uh, sensual, fatal woman. Um, there are many meanings, but also... If you combine all those mythologies and meanings uh, and apply that to a writer's role, uh, so writers are tricksters, uh, they are entertainers, they are liars, uh, they could shift gender easily uh, if they want to. Uh, they deal with the humans mm -hmm. to cheat them. But also, uh, they are the lowest uh, kind. I mean, they are always presented as uh, lonely creatures. And then let us think now... Uh, in the terms of what do they get if they're so bad, foxes? They get nothing. Right. And um, uh, there is a very popular, you know, like imagery of hunting for foxes. Uh, do people hunt foxes because they eat chicken? No, they hunt them because of a fur, which is still valuable. So, and then about that cheating and, you know, trickstery. I mean, a fox. Just remember this uh, fable, Aesop's fable, about the fox and the crow mm -hmm. on the wood, which keeps him in his beak a piece of cheese. So fox negotiates, and she wastes a lot of words so that that creature retard on the on the branch would you know <laughs> open its open, open its beak. The beak and and she would finally earn her honorarium yeah which is just a piece of cheese yeah that's really interesting and i i wonder if this is true in croatian but in english um you see that double meaning the pairing of of the writer and the deception in the English language. So if you look at the words art or craft, so mm -hmm. uh, for instance, 
the word artful in English means to be sly, cunning, devious, Machiavellian, or crafty. Mm. And the word crafty uh, can mean dishonest. So mm. to pursue arts and crafts mm-hmm. in the language itself feels like, at least in English, it's a fox-like thing to do. Mm. Is that Does that carry over into Croatian at all, that sense of art being a deception in the language? Yeah. It does. Yeah, it could be. It had, oh, this is all like, you know, invented or art or imagination or this is not truth. So... When you apply those truth, non-truth on the art, I mean, this is, you finish in Stalinism. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to, I actually did want to pivot to Stalinism because um, the book from the start is is crafty and artful. And, and reading it, it feels like sort of entering a, a playful and really erudite hall of mirrors. Um, so the first section of the book has the same title as a story by Boris Pilnyak, the, the story of how stories come to be written. Most Americans, I don't think, have probably heard of Boris Pilnyak. Uh, Although the, he's translated. He is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's Many. a writer in the, in the 20s and 30s who you were examining in this section. And I wasn't sure if, because there's so many parts of, the, of Fox uh, that are real, and then, and then other parts of this book that are presented as real, which aren't real. And so, for instance, I didn't know of Boris Pilnyak and especially thought he was imaginary because you cite a novel of his called OK! Exclamation mark, an American novel. It which, does exist. Yeah, which seems <laughs> extraordinary. But then, indeed, he is real. This novel, OK! An American novel is real. But um, there's an epigraph at the beginning of the book, which is actually fake mm-hmm. uh that um and so is the author so i was hoping we could just start with maybe you could talk a little bit about boris pilnyak why he's important to you and more generally what attracts you to uh the russian literature the experimental russian literature of that era uh pre-stalin and before the purges uh, it's a long story, of course. I mean, so so uh, Pilnyak um, was interesting. I mean, he is interesting writer. Not not all of his works, uh, but let's say his um, major work is a novel, Naked Year, and um, from twenties, and it is concerned to be. Uh, I mean. Uh, I mean, he got those garlands as being, you know, uh, Russian James Joyce because of technique he uses in in the novel Naked Ear. But I like the story and I use the story uh, because I needed it for this fox uh, symbolic because he, of course, betrayed uh, uh, that woman, uh, Sofia Gnedich, uh, from the story uh, taken from Japanese author. Uh, he calls it Tagaki, but later on I explained that it might be living author, Tanizaki. I mean, but it doesn't matter. Um, um, so, so that's the story. But otherwise, Fox could also be applied um, because of its ambiguity um, as a major, let's say, definition of Russian avant-garde art and culture. And Russian avant-garde 
culture um, deals with betraying um, consumers' expectations. Mm. It subverts, subverted, sub subverts, subvert. It subvert uh, any uh, um, expectation or knowledge about about culture. I mean, they dis destroyed uh, Russian avant-garde writers. They destroyed the notion of realistic novel. Okay, uh, painting the same. It happened. Um, so um, they threw everything from the ship of contemporaneity, as Vladimir Mayakovsky would say. Mm. So it was challenging. It was vital. It was really new. And what is more, it came with the changes in politics, in society, in relationships. Everything was changed, and art also followed that. Up to 1932, when, uh, because of Stalinism, when uh, all turned back to old good realism. It was called socialist realism. Okay. Yeah. So, no any more experiments, no any more strange things, no any more subversions, just um, good old um, realism. Yeah. No, I, I was reading about how he was censored and forced to change his stories, Bor Boris Pilniak, mm -hmm. and then he was accused of, of plotting to kill Stalin and being a spy for Japan and ultimately executed along with 2,000 other Soviet writers. This is an unbelievable story. Yeah. How he finished in his own metaphor. I mean, how metaphor strangled him. Yeah. How the fox, in fact, is this KGB or NKVD uh, officer who came to bring him to Yezhov. That leads us to another comparison, to 1953 essay written by Isaiah Berlin about Fox and, and Hedgehog, where he tries to apply very funny typology uh, uh, in, uh, in a writer's scene that hedgehogs uh, are people, writers in this respect, people uh, who are sort of following one one ideology and foxes a writer who could jump from one to another change the vision hmm. uh, so i mean of course berlin himself didn't pay much attention i mean he knew that this is a sort of a game you can't make a serious typology but there is a um, a little like seed of truth in yeah. all of that well, I, I, the one of the ways in which poor Boris Pilniak was interesting was at a lens through looking at your your personal biography in this regard, H him being a victim of brute nationalism, but also that you describe Pilniak's story as organized on the principle of juxtaposition and the relationship between incomplete stories narrated in fragments, which could be a description of your books. I, I, uh, an apt description of your books. And I, I was curious if, if maybe you could speak to 
that pivot point in Yugoslavia when uh, when it, Yugoslavia was was disappearing as a country and becoming these different ethno nationalist states. Um, what was happening with writers and with the writing culture at that moment? Because um, you've spoken to the way in which experiment and um, avant garde writing is essentially labeled anti-revolutionary under Stalin. What, what, what was happening um, to the literary tradition in Croatia and Serbia and, and Bosnia in terms of um, the type of writing that was being preferenced or the ways writers were being treated at the time that you, you left Yugoslavia? It's a shameful story. It's a shameful story, and it is very difficult for me to talk about it because, um, you know, in such constellations, it's extremely difficult to not to go with the stream. So you have to be... Um, I don't know. I, I don't even think that... Um, we can talk about being brave or being smart or being whatever. Um, you just, um, it's an instinct of survival. So in such constellations, always a uh, majority of the people would go with the, the stream, whatever it is. It could be fascism. And we already have historical example uh, in in Germany. So there were rare writers who protested and who gave to all of that some public voice, um, or who emigrated too. You know, um, the others they adapt to situation, and that happened in Yugoslavia too. You know, Croats went with Croats, Serbs with Serbs, Bosnians with Bosnians. And um, um, not even, I mean, many of them, they didn't propagandate, uh, let's say, Croatian nationalism in their work. But they were cautious not to be exposed to the critique because... Uh, they saw at the very beginning what happened, let's say, to me and some other of my colleagues also. Mm. I wouldn't say that there were no protests and no resistance. Uh, it was, let's say, in Croatia, a fantastic um, newspaper, mostly journalists, uh, newspaper Feral Tribune. Uh, Feral is a uh, in a slang of Dalmatia, it's a street lamp. Hmm. So they did a pun, Feral Herald Tribune. <laughs> and um, and they were excellent, and they're s until now, they are, they are constantly resisting to all of that. Um, but the rest is, it stayed more or less the same. A new generation now appears which is taking over, and they're more, like, you know, emancipated from this heavy nationalistic repression. Well, you, you've said in one interview, culture has lost its power and appeal in countries like Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Poland. 
In many cases, the function of cultural subversiveness has been replaced with nation-building function. Is that also, would you say that's also true in Croatia and Serbia? Yeah, absolutely. It lost its appeal, and um, uh, because, you know, there is additional story with all of that. It's a total destruction. Uh, I didn't believe that such thing could happen, but the total destruction of former culture, which was, let's say, Yugoslav, because Yugoslav was, a ta- I mean, it tagged some other notions, like communist, Tito, uh, repression, whether they are false or not, you know. Mm. Um, so from, let's say, a Croatian perspective, all of that should be deleted, First Croatian president, Franjo Tuđman, he wanted, although he was a Tito's general and partisan, he wanted to delete 50 years of history of Yugoslavia and Yugoslavism. So it was a ban at the beginning. You could not see any movies. You could not Yugoslav movies. You could not read any books. There was a book-burning episodes in Croatia, like during the Nazi time in, in, in Germany. Uh, so deleting, cleansing of libraries, um, uh, of people. I mean, tons and tons of books are dead, as well as writers. Um, just to, you know, to promote something which is Croatian. And Croatian is blood tape. It's uh, ethnicity, you know, nothing else. Mm-hmm. So they deleted all of that in order to link what is the worst of the worst, what happened, to link Croatian history to a short period um, of Second World War when Croatia was a Nazi puppet state. So that's why today we have, if not fascism, we have a lot of fascist insignia in Croatian landscape, in Serbian landscape too, you know. Hmm. Um, A lot of swastika popping out like popcorn. Nobody notices this because it's a, you know landscape people are used to. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Dubrovka Ugresic about her two latest books, Fox and the American Fictionary, both out from Open Letter. Just to return briefly to Pilniak and... I just want to add here. Yeah. If you want to find out about that, there is a fantastic uh, exhibition at MoMA um, concrete utopia about Yugoslav architectural um, uh, modernism in 70s and um, there you have the story but the story is not complete because more than half of those monuments are neglected mined, destroyed um, they exist in this exhibition. That's why it was so emotional mm. for me to go there. So it was not only literature. 
that's what I want to say. Yeah. It was a complete destruction of everything material that culture, art, which was, you know, done and built. Um, well, maybe this is a good time because this is another major theme in Fox is this question of what gets remembered, what right. gets re- erased, uh, what is leg- what what enters the canon, what becomes part of a legacy and what, what gets destroyed. So there are, there are many footnotes in this essayistic novel, um, footnotes that, uh, nevertheless feel central to the book. Like there's a quote by a Russian writer that says, true literature can only exist when it is created, not by diligent and reliable officials, but by madmen, hermits, heretics, dreamers, rebels, and skeptics. And then later in the main text, we get a meditation on footnotes. We are all footnotes. Many of us will never have the chance to be read. All of us in an unrelenting and desperate struggle for our lives, for the life of a footnote, to remain on the surface before, in spite of our efforts, we are submerged. So it feels like this is a a essential question of who's going to be elevated who's going to be pushed to the margins, and why. And you said in interviews that to be remembered is the greatest achievement as a writer, and the harsh facts of exile make an exiled writer more modest. She's constantly confronted with her insignificance. And when I think back to Boris Pilniak and a little bit of research I did on him, at one point he was the second most read writer in Russia after Gorky, but now nearly unread. So I wonder if your foregrounding of writers such as Boris Pilniak is sort of a, a, a counterbalance to this, this inexorable erasure. Like if you're, if you're trying to raise this footnote back into the center, in a sense. Yeah, in fact, because there is another metaphor which goes through all novel, and this is, this is that oblivion, uh, and this volcanic dust. That's why Pompeii in the oh. uh, in the second chapter, volcanic dust which covers and falls on us uh, all the time, and that's why those little blue foxes from which appear in the first chapter from the popular Japanese culture, uh, anime and um, and. Um, uh, cartoons and uh, uh, so so they with their tails they they spread the dust of oblivion you know because they are not anymore connected with their past you know so mm. what we are all witnessing today it's a discontinuity. Uh, or we get the message connected with some past uh, event or text. Let's let's deal with the word text. Text, but we don't know anymore. The connection is so random that we don't know the history, you know. So what happened? I was... Somebody sent it to me yesterday or the other day by mail... Um, those destroyed monuments, let's say, Yugoslav monuments, uh, somebody took them, a musician who has like 70 million, um, Adam Walker, could that be? I'm not sure. 
Walker, it's Walker. But whether it is Adam or not, he's a producer um, of videos and, and also music. So what he did, he used the landscape of those Yugoslav monuments because it's that brutal architecture, concrete, this and that. But they are taken out of the context. And what he does in his video, you know, he suggests that those were, in fact, sort of... I mean, it's don't. It's very difficult to accuse anybody or to because I don't know. But they are obviously taken from the context, and the whole video and scenography uh, tells you about something which could be neo-fascist or neo totalitarian or whatever military, you know, which is which was the opposite. I mean. Uh, what I want to say is that the time of discontinuity we live in is extremely dangerous because people do not know history. They don't know what they've eaten yesterday. So how can they connect the things, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and And this is why footnotes, this is why that insisting on remembering um, uh, because I think it's, it's extremely important uh, discontinuity is the death of culture well some of the most I guess they're both painful and funny moments in Fox are these moments of uh, are some of the moments of discontinuity particularly when you're um, at literary conventions or conferences um, but you do paint a a grim picture of the around the question of legacy and around uh, the future of the literary endeavor, which I wanted to ask you about, because you've mentioned that one of the reasons why you loved the Russian formalists is that literature was still respected as a serious and important practice, and literary theory and criticism was taken equally seriously. And you've mentioned that both of those things have changed. Um, in your section, the balancing art, your your characters at a literary convention. And, and your character is the serious writer, but your character is also sort of the footnote to the main act. And the main act is this woman called the widow mm. who's a, a, she's a celebrity writer, but she's not really a writer. She's more a, a curator of her famous dead husband's writing. So he was a famous writer and she's living sort of as his proxy in the world. And she gets far more attention than the serious writer. But then later in that chapter, our footnote, the serious writer gets to be in the center of the stage. She goes to talk to students, but no one knows who she is or has bothered to look her up prior to her coming for the speech. So there's this complete discontinuity between mm. who she is and even her audience. Um, and I wondered if you felt like now is the exception or whether the Russian formalists, that remarkable period, was the exception. Like, do you do you feel like, uh, or do these things wax and wane through through time? These periods of of great focus and seriousness around literature, and then at other times a complete disconnect around it. Of course, I'm changing my mind constantly, <laughs> and um, 
for instance, I'm I'm in this country for a tour uh, because two books are published this year, Fox and uh, American Fictionary, and uh, I'm touring and. I'm constantly surprised by American readers, and they're absolutely fantastic. There are not many of them. Probably I'm not such a likable, <laughs> wildly likable writer. But nevertheless, those readers who read me... Yesterday I had an event in a Powell's bookstore, and uh, th there were people who would know almost better my work than I myself. There was a man who quoted some details. I all already forgot about them, but he knew those details. And he appeared, I mean, with a bunch of my books. It was absolutely, I mean, for me, that was so moving. And also to find out that Portland, the city I am for the first time in my life, has fantastic, four excellent bookstores, which I never ever saw such a big and bookstores full of wonderful books. Um, this is surprise. Surprise always is waiting for you in the place you do not expect. Mm -hmm. So, so the, all what I've said about death of literature, uh, it's not truth, because there is a genuine need and and hunger for for literature and such readers also they raise the standard standard of reading and standard of expectation from the writer that's why i said that those fantastic readers we don't know as they're all over and i'm writing for them you know hmm. Uh, because they are better than I am. I'm always writing. I think that Italo Calvino, he said something like that also, that he's writing for the writer, uh, for the reader who is more clever than he is, uh, more educated than he is, and and that's the talk. Mm. And then... I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, another thing that I feel like you share with Boris Pilniak is a wary relationship to technology. He was a supporter of anti-urbanism and a critic of the mechanization of society. You're, you're more, because of it, you're from a different time, but you're, you're focused on the effect of digital technology on, on language and the imagination. Um, at one point in Fox, and you, you, you reference this, we get the Fox as a digital avatar, uh, the anime Fox the, on, the, on people's screens in the subway that replaces these these other more complex and contradictory meanings of the fox. There's a way in which the digital fox feels like it's a more static version of the fox. But I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the impact of the digital for you and on the literary. I can follow that on my on my own um uh, example, because, um, you know, I have a cellar in Amsterdam, and that cellar is full of technical stuff. And then when you go there, you realize that, in fact, technical stuff is your your biography. 
uh, that and that year I switched from the notebook to uh, from this type of a printer to another type of a printer from uh, uh, like uh, you know phone recorder to that recorder and you see uh, you confront yourself with your technological biography and with all that garbage in the cellar you know which all works, but mm. you are forced by industry to change it, uh, gadgets, every every year. And um, I do think that, um, you know, it, it shapes us. It shapes even our bodies, you know, your fingers, the way you use your fingers, your brains too. But... Um, as technology is something that we never question, we use it because we don't have time to question it, you know. Um, so we don't know really the impact. I mean, one minute of contemplation about the influence of technology on our brains can frighten you. So, but everybody uses it. You are forced to do that because one day you you. I refused for a long time, for instance, iPhone, because I can't stand that iPhone culture. I mean, that loud talking and uh, constantly looking at this gadget. I mean, it's, it's pretty disgusting. But now I have it. I do the same, mm -hmm. you know. Um, because I was forced by the market. Suddenly, my landscape changed. There are no anymore phone booths. There are no this and that. So you have to adapt. Yeah. That's it. Well, you've said we live in a time of the theatricalization of everything, of being forced to, quote, unquote, act ourselves, which to me feels like this might be related to this issue of, of this new technology, too. And you, you've mentioned before that the term post-truth has recently been added to the Oxford English Dictionary and that technology has played a role in the advancement of the post-truth era uh, and advancing a, a deprofessionalization where the value of experts is diminished. And you say, soon we are all going to write and nobody will have time to or need to read us. So I'm wondering... We are what, close to that, yeah. What the role of technology is in this, because we were talking about this absence of history, uh, this this disconnect between what is being said and its relationship to any knowledge of the past. Um, and then at the same time, we have access to everything or the seemingly to everything, right? So like there's mm -hmm. a sense of endless information, but also paradoxically no connection to history. Uh, because you don't memorize. You have it on your, in your iPhone. Mm -hmm. So people, I think what is happening is that uh, people are less and less educated uh, with the huge possibilities to be more and more educated, but because of those huge possibilities, they don't use it, you know. Uh, I have endless talks with, with uh, my spouses, you know, how and I'm boring, and I preach, and I'm, I'm in just a boring uh, aunt. So, so um, because they don't memorize things, everything is here. So they just, with one 
press on the button, they can got, uh, get info. But this is not anymore their real knowledge or reference. Uh, so, so this is, you know, maybe I'm too old. Uh, but more and more what is happening to me that some references I'm using, or for me, they're normal, you know, uh, other people do not know that. Let's say the banal, I mean, a year or two or three, uh, Jeanne Moreau died, a French actress. Mm -hmm. And I said to to a neighbor, and he's, um, he's um, I think he's in video and uh, video art, and I said, oh, Jeanne Moreau died. And he said, who is Jeanne Moreau? Mm. And then I realized that, you know, yeah, he could check that, who, who she was. But this is not the reference he really, um, this is not his referential field. Uh, from the other hand, I, I can get through others' referential fields. Let's say my niece, she's 15 years old. So I can follow Justin Bieber because she follows it. Um, <laughs> well, th this, might yeah. be, this might be very tangential. This might be a footnote to this conversation, but it made me think somewhat randomly of this event that happens regularly in Portland called Other People's Poems. And it's a, a small gathering that meets at a bookstore and you go and you, you have to have memorized uh, someone else's poem and you recite it, so mm -hmm. without notes. So it's a very different... I, I mean, I know that traditionally in education, you would always memorize. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and yeah. Now, now this event is a very uh, unusual event. But at the same Again, time... Again, Roy Bradbury, this is it. Yeah, because I was thinking yeah. that... I was thinking that there's that's the difference between holding a poem in your own body and yeah. and reading it off of a screen for the first time. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, at the heart of the novel is a is a section called The Devil's Garden, mm -hmm. which is m the most tr traditionally novelistic section in the book and our mm -hmm. our protagonist has inherited a house. Mm -hmm. She goes to post-war Croatia and she finds it inhabited by a man who's both taking care of the house and taking care of the fox that lives in the garden. And he's sort of an, an inversion of what you describe of the trajectory of Cro Croatia, it seems mm. to me. Because, for instance, you've talked before in interviews about a publisher you knew when you lived in Yugoslavia, mm. who, when Croatian nationalism emerged, he becomes the chief of police. That's true. Yeah, mm. that's amazing. That was my publisher. Yeah. So here we have, on the other hand, a man mm -hmm. uh, who used to be a judge before mm -hmm. the war, who's mm -hmm. now dedicated to removing landmines that remain since mm -hmm. the war mm -hmm. began. So he goes out into the forest mm -hmm. to remove the, the landmines. And these two people have a, a romance. And it's really only here that mm -hmm. the protagonist feels a sense of home. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear whether the home is the house and the land and the garden or if the home is really just this connection with another person, which isn't based on ethnicity or political allegiances. Right. But I wondered about your notion of home mm -hmm. as a writer, um, as a writer of a nation that no longer, an imaginary nation or a nation that no longer exists. It's a dialogue. 
Writing is a dialogue. Writing is a longing for a listener, for a reader, for a dialogue with a reader, you know. Uh, you can't write for... Sometimes writers, they would say, oh, I write for myself. You know, only, I mean, psychically disturbed people, they write for themselves. This is well known. Uh, but otherwise, you need you need the other, uh, where you send your messages. You need that understanding. So uh, I once used as a motto for my early, early work, um, and the motto came from uh, Marcus, who said he was asked um, why he's writing, and he said, "I write in order to be loved." Mm. And that seemed to me a pretty honest answer. Yeah. So we need this listener. We need this reader. So home, you are right, in fact. Home is the other person. Hmm. Home is that then you have. Not the, not the material home, not the... Blend, not the yes, there are certain I mean landscapes you like, you adopt, these are yours, landscapes, um, family, all of that place, of course. But I think that writers, in fact, they are not Serbs, Croats, Americans, French, uh, Mongolian, but they all are, in fact, citizens of Republic of Letters. Literature is home. Hmm. And you've, you've talked about advocating a literary transnationalism before. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah, in fact, um, I'm advocating for my position, in fact, too. Uh, it would be <laughs> immodest to say that, I mean, um, what they want to say is that, yes, I was raised in and born in Yugoslavia, but rarely they would you would read that uh, Ugresic is a Croatian born author. I'm not Croatian born author. I'm if we really follow the fact, I'm Yugoslav born author. And then uh, you would say uh, sometimes mostly people write uh, that I'm a Croatian writer living in Netherlands. Um, which just shows you the rigidness of that ethnicity labeling, which is so deeply wrong, and I so protest against it, because I don't want to be forced. I'm forced to be a Croatian writer. Who says that? Who is that police who could, you know... Um, uh, count my my blood cells or whatever. So uh, yes, in Netherlands uh, I live happily uh, and I publish my books. But I doubt that I'm accepted as a member of that I belong to Dutch literature because Dutch they would say she doesn't write in Dutch. Mm -hmm. That's it. Uh, Croats, in Croatia, I am not fully accepted as a Croatian writer because of many reasons. And one reason is also that I live in Netherlands. Uh, 
So there are many writers, in fact, today, due to migrations, uh, changes, political changes, uh, I mean, uh, emancipation from that belonging thing, repression, who uh, travel, who would live five years in Portugal, another five years somewhere else, so who are in between. And I think that when we deal with such writers, we should really take that into account, that there are writers who are post-national, who are transnational, who do not want to belong. They belong to literature. There are writers still who are very proud to belong to their national literature. So I think we should respect, not take as a sheer truth the second position, yes, I am Croatian writer, but to take and respect into account and respect that position of not wanting to belong. Mm. We're talking today to the writer Dubravka Ugresic about her two latest books from Open Letter, Fox and The American Fictionary. I'd like to talk about the role of women mm-hmm. in Fox and your work in general. But before mm-hmm. we do, I was hoping you might read a couple pages for us, uh, and I have marked them out. Mm-hmm. Let's see. So I was hoping you might read this piece on the muskrat. Oh, the muskrat on Datra Zibeticus is a variety of wetlands rat, smaller than a beaver, yet bigger than the common rat. It may, with its tail, reach to 30 inches in length and weight as much as 5 pounds. It is named for the musk it uses to mark its territory. It breeds unusually rapidly. The female bears as many as four litters a year, with six to eight young in each. Native Americans revered the, the muskrat in their creation myths. The muskrat dredged up the primordial muck from the ocean floor. From this muck came earth. The muskrat was introduced in Europe in the early part of the last century when they were first raised on Czech farms. Muskrat fur coats were all the craze in the 20s. The rats, however, eluded control and scampered off to freedom, and from there they colonized Europe, particularly wherever there was a lot of water. Because of its lowlands, the Netherlands was their most natural habitat. For the Dutch, the muskrat, muscus rat, is constant threat. It chews for its habitat the polders, and by doing so has compromised the elaborate Dutch system of flood protection. Rat exterminators exterminators are prized and richly compensated in Holland. The Belgians have come up with a tasty dish made of muskrat meat served in restaurants, though true, not many. After a salt rub and an onion marinade, the muskrat is stewed in beer. In New Zealand, the muskrat 
has been strictly banned as a species, but in Canada, hats sewn from its fur graze the winter uniform of the Canadian Royal Mounted Police. These details about the muskrat are a rambling prelude to a brief incident described to me by a Dutch friend, a writer. While working on her novel, she found she needed to know the muskrat inside and out. She acquired the freshly butchered one, skinned it, and, recalling the section class in high school biology, she cut it open. Then she poured over its innards, roasted it in the oven, and dined on it. She set aside the muskrat's larger and smaller bones, laid them out in a tin box, and buried the box in her garden. My friend is a calm and sober 50-year-old woman, pleased with her life. Each time we meet for a coffee, I remembered her story and feel a rush of respect for her. Before me sits somebody who has faced her muskrat, dissected it, her problem, dined on it, digested it, and buried the inedible remains. And each time I ask myself, when will I face mine? The reason for my reluctance lies not so much in my cowardice as in my sense of futility and then in the feeling of illegality of the literary voice and literary form. A woman's voice is not, of course, illegal, but women, it seems, have still not embraced or conquered every form of literary expression. The, the specific dyslexia that readers, men and women alike, show when reading literary texts each for his or her own reasons, has made this conquest impossible. In short, more girls still write romance novels, while notes from underground are reserved for boys. The rebellious confession is a male literary narrative because the rebel is invariably a man. He's a tragic hero. The story of a tragic heroine is read with the dyslexia I mentioned as a tale of a mad woman. We come across such mad women on the street women who seem to be muttering with an invisible collocutor. An encounter with them is more likely to arise disquiet than compassion. A passerby usually move away and avert their eyes, though the mad woman never looks at anyone. Such women have apparently learned they cannot rely on anybody. They wage their battles alone. We've been listening to Dubrovka Gresic read from Fox. 
So the reason why I wanted you to read that, that section, particularly the part where the tragic hero is viewed as a rebel and the tragic heroine is viewed as a mad woman. And I think back to the beginning of the book that true literature can only exist when it is created not by diligent and reliable officials, but by madmen, hermits, heretics, dreamers, rebels, and skeptics. It feels like you're performing an inversion the way you took being accused of a witch and explored it through the lens of the myth of Baba Yaga. And here with the fox, um, at least in the in the East, being a female demon, a demonic perso- personification of female Eros. And it feels like you're sort of reclaiming these epithets as the true literature, that the true literature comes from the mad woman and the supernatural female Eros of the fox demon is the writer's totem. So I was hoping maybe we could, you could talk a little bit about your thoughts about being accused not just of being a traitor, but of being a witch, which is decidedly gendered, uh, and mm-hmm. that the other people accused with you or the four other women were also mm-hmm. accused of uh, of being a witch. What what sort of work do you think is happening by leveling that accusation against you specifically? Uh, first of all, what, what they I started to write against this this nationalism when. It started, I mean, so immediately, at the very beginning. And uh, that was a sort of a shock, and it was a sort of poor environment. Um, And that was something which is totally unacceptable. And the media, um, politicians, of course, but media, uh, fellow writers too, you know, people are using such constellations to somehow to hurt you. Uh, so um, the easy, I, I, what I think today is that the easiest way for the environment constellation which was always misogynist, I mean, and which was all male dominated, you know. Um, so inventing a scandal and finding the symbolic name for it, and this is the witch, was the most, um, let's say, (laughs) expected in such situations. Uh, They wouldn't say women philosophers or educated women, but they would say a witch. Why? At that time, uh, Croatian society became heavily Catholicized, so, I mean, a witch is fantasy of Catholic Church, of course, and a victim of um, genocide, which Catholic Church was doing for at least four centuries, and they were never brought to the Hague Tribunal, by the way, for instance, for that, or never accused on genocide. Um, So... So you can't accuse church, okay? So so that was being a witch. That was the most proper term they could find. Don't forget that witches, they sleep with the devil. So devil in that semantic field was a Serb, a communist, another, um, but mostly Serb, because Serb was that enemy. So... Uh, me, together with other other women, we were accused 
uh, like we sleep with Serbs, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is to- totally crazy. And you, you, you feel beneath that that an enormous misogyny which, which goes on. And then um, th- that, that was the sin, Okay, and what I've written, and I've written about about fascism, because they called it nicely nationalism. But if you have concentration camps, as they were, you know, for Muslims in Bosnia, Srebrenica case, genocide of eight thousand Muslims killed by Serbs, or if you have Croatian concentration camps for Serbs and torturing, I mean, or killing people just because, civil, just civilians, just because they are different uh, ethnic group, how can you call that then fascism? So nationalism is a euphemism. And, of course, they couldn't stand that in all that euphoria of national liberation and so on and so forth. So definitely, yes, I was, I was, I was, a, I was a witch. But such a thing would not happen without society deeply soaked in misogyny. And that misogyny lasts until now because because of a support of church too mm-hmm. you know women should be quiet women should not open their mouth women are there just to deal with church kids and kitchen well that's what i was going to ask is is the fact that you and the four other women were educated professional women yeah informed about what was happening, yeah. if that was part of the, the fear that would bring out that accusation as well. Yeah, but witches, they come with uh, education. They were educated women. They were healers. Uh, so it was always fear uh, in past that, that witches are more smart than men. They would outsmart the men. That was misogynist fear, mm. you know. Well, I love how if we take this idea of of doing an inversion around uh, misogyny in Fox and also this question of legacy and erasure and footnotes versus the main text, um, the way that you take the story of Nabokov naming a, a butterfly and he names one of the butterflies after uh, a chauff- essentially a, a chauffeur of his who's a woman – uh, and you sort of invert the story to make her the center of the story. So Nabokov becomes the the uh, footnote mm-hmm. to her in that chapter, essentially. Mm-hmm. It feels like a great mm-hmm. act of restorative justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Though it is very discreetly done, all of that. Uh, otherwise, there are some... some uh, um, some examples, for instance, there is a novel of uh, Italian author written some time ago, um, uh, Lolita from Lolita's point of view. Mm-hmm. So there, there are yeah. such. Uh, uh, but I like that because of that footnote theme, which goes all through the uh, through the fox. Yeah. 
So, so your other book that's just come out is your essay collection, American Fictionary, which was first published under another name in 94 and has been revised and updated. Um, and for much of your career, you, post-Yugoslavia, you've, you've alternated between publishing fiction and essays. And I'd love to hear about what differs for you when you're writing an essay, and particularly because your fictions are essayistic often, and your essays also are sometimes fictional. Yeah. So fictional. you have some essays in this collection which, which are, are fictional. Fiction, yeah. yeah. And you have some parts of, of Fox that appear to be essays um, but aren't. So um, talk to us about the appeal and the challenge or what part of Dubrovka Ugresic comes forward when you're writing an essay versus a novel. Hmm. I think I, I somehow... Um, acquired that that balance in between uh, novel fiction and uh, essays. Uh, sometimes they they are perplexed. They go into each other like like calms, you know. So you you can't say what is what. Um, and I like that too. But let's say um, there is also a sort of a um, uh, practical reason, not so practical, but it's a matter of even of reading, you know, for the novel, you need uh, it's a, it's a marathon, okay. You need a strength, you need a vision. You you it's a big risk because it's a uh, it's a you know that it will take your time and soul and everything. Mm-hmm. And essays are sort of immediate reaction on, on something which which is painful, which hurts you, which you think that you have to react, and uh, it's irresistible not to react. And, and that form, for me, is the sort of a, also breathing, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's shorter, it's, it's results are immediate, uh, and it's a sort of a, um, let's say covered diary, because I recognize the time when they were written. Mm. So, so with the novel is meant to last, and essay, uh, not so. I mean, we we sometimes some essays are outdated. Sometimes they're okay. They fit uh, into. Um, let's say, um, context perfectly even after 30 years. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they mean just a trace in the time or a little mark in the time or a reminder. Well, you've, you've quoted Adorno before saying that idea, his idea that an essay should contain heresy at its core and its heart and its right. structure. Yeah, tell us a that's little. That's true. Yeah, I I don't remember. I I can't quote for, but but there is a wonderful essay by Adorno on essay. Uh, so, and as far as as I understood, the core of essay form is always a sort of resistance. It's a heresy, as you quoted Zamyatin. Uh, right. About about true literature is written by heretics and and so so yes I I think it is truth because impulse is to resist 
you know, to stupidity, to, to something banal in the press, to some... Um, I wrote an essay about, because I was so upset, uh, a girl was raped somewhere in Dalmatia, and that immediately, you know, pushed me to to react. So, uh, or some some you know s- stupid stereotypes, and and you always it essay also <laughs> makes you alive, and you're a fighter somewhere mm. in it. I tried to uh, make it a pleasant form, not not to pamphlet or manifesto or anything like that, but. Um, but um, yes, in 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 the core, in the heart of the essay, is that heresy. You do something that's that's I really love at the beginning of this book, American Fictionary. Um, you start out by calling it indecent, and you name various types of writing that you condemn, but that then you go ahead and do anyways in the book. So you you've always believed that a writer with any Self-respect avoids three things, mm-hmm. autobiography, writing about other countries, and diaries. And you say that all three smack of narcissism, which is undoubtedly the basic premise of any literary act, but shouldn't also be its outcome. And in all three genres, this outcome is hard to avoid. But nevertheless, you, you in American Fictionary, you do write about other countries. You do... Mm. You do write autobiography, essentially. Talk to us about this this risk of narcissism and why you think literature begins when confession ends. I agree with myself <laughs> in, this, in, this, in this case. Yeah. Uh, so, but I'm also aware of that, and I try to avoid it, the outcome. Okay. So whether I'm managing that or not, it's, uh, it's um, on reader this ideal reader uh, to say. But um, yes, I mean, the impulse to write about foreign countries is always um, an impulse of colonizer, okay? So you come and you colonize. (laughs) Uh, Tourists are colonizers too. Mm -hmm. People who judge about other countries, other people, are also sort of colonizers. from the other hand, I mean, a position of a, of a colonizer is also a sort of, you know, inferior because uh, you are aware that you would never really understand. You just pretend you take, buy a souvenir and you go home and you say, yes, I was in America, America is such and such. <laughs> so... As I bought recently, by the way, on the tour, I bought at Niagara Falls, I bought uh, this snowball yeah. with Nikola Tesla in it. <laughs> I liked it very much. <laughs> that sounds great. Nikola Tesla with the sno- in the snow. In the snow? Yeah. You bought that at Niagara in Falls? Blizzard, yes. <laughs> so I liked it. Um, no, I, I don't think that American fiction is a, is a special book. It does not pretend to be a diary, nor uh, autobiography, uh, nor uh, travelogue, nothing of that. I mean, um, it, it has a special temperature because 
Uh, in reality, this is now autobiographical moment, yes. In 1991, the war started in Yugoslavia. Uh, I was invited before that um, uh, by University of Wesleyan in Middletown to teach one semester, winter semester. So I came earlier and I used the moment when it was a ceasefire so that I could take a train. I even couldn't take a plane because airport was closed. Um, uh, you couldn't take money from your bank because banks were closed. Uh, thanks God I had the passport. And I was invited by my Dutch publisher to come to Amsterdam. And I came somewhere end of September uh, to Amsterdam uh, because of my books, which appeared there. But then um, there was now a big dilemma then whether I should go back or whether I should use that situation and prolong to America, where the job was waiting for me from January to June 1992. Um, I did that. I was lucky when I got a visa at the American um, embassy in Amsterdam, which is difficult to get. But somehow I, I got invitation letter, and they, so I got I got a visa, and then I went. I traveled a bit earlier than I was supposed to. So before that. Dutch newspaper commissioned a column from uh, me being in the United States. So with all that package, with the war behind my back, with the uh, uh, worrying about my family, first of all, my mother and my brother and his family. So I, I went, uh, and then I was sort of, you know, confronted with different tasks. One was to adapt to American environment, to teach quickly. Uh, I, I came without books, without anything. I just, you know. Um, uh, then another task was to write uh, and direct my essays to the reader I didn't know. Dutch newspaper reader. And the third was constant, constant connection with my family in Zagreb and, you know, transmitting news and what happened and all that. So my world, uh, as I'm mentioning that at the beginning of American Fictionary, using the quote from Alice from, Wonder, uh, from Wonderland, um, all my worlds words scattered. So in that moment, my words scattered, but also my world scattered. Everything crashed, absolutely everything. It is now difficult to explain all of that. Uh, but, but, you know, it was an earthquake, a disaster. So the only thing I could think of to somehow to pick those pieces was to write something in a form of dictionary, to start anew, mm -hmm. you know. But that didn't work, too. I mean, it worked at the beginning, because I started with ID, refugee, who am I, um, where I'm coming from, what's going on. But then, bit by bit, I was taken by 
my new landscape, and that was the American landscape or the landscape of New York and uh, small American university campus and so on. So some random, I just relaxed in that, uh, some random contents or random pictures or random frag fragments were getting into my my foci. And it was unavoidable, too, to forget where I'm coming from. So that's why I'm using this double nervous split um, vision to the things. I mean, my vision is blurred because I'm recalling what is happening back uh, in, in Yugoslavia and Croatia. And... Um, and what I'm seeing in front of my eyes. So sometimes those contents are trivial, sometimes uh, they're bigger themes, uh, sometimes it is a thing like bagel. Yeah, I'm using which you read last bagel, which You read about read that last night, it was last great. Last night, something it, it is more like demanding theme, like Yuga Americana yeah. um, chapter, I mean. So... And then I realized that it can't be dictionary at all, because dictionary, this is a job. It could be only fictionary, you know, because all was existing and non-existing. I mean, virtual and real. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was a special vision, special, you know, uh, perspective, special atmosphere, special... Uh, inside temperature, special energy, um, uh, special nervousness. Mm. So all that could be read uh, as a subtext of those uh, pieces, which are amusing or less amusing. And I feel like you can maybe see the roots of your transnational literature as home in the sense that you're you're condemning the ways in which Yugoslavian literature is devolving into open letters and diaries, which you've you've condemned in the in the preface, yeah. and that you're also observing the way in which American literature seems to be obsessed with what you call collective autobiography, another mm. form that you're, yeah. you're you're condemning. Um, mm. And for the most part, it feels like America is pretty unrelentingly critiqued, except for New York City. Um, it's and a I, love story to New yeah. York. No, in a way, like <laughs> that's I, it. <laughs> it's. A, I mean, this is a love story from the very beginning. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I'm not giving up. I'm yeah. still fascinated with with the. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. Is is actually the postscript that you wrote yeah. recently. Mm. So there's you've revised the book, you've removed some essays, you've changed mm. some essays, mm. and you've added material and and this new postscript about Roosevelt Island is mm. just marvelous. Um, My new discovery. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also connect. I feel like this meditation on Roosevelt Island, so for those who don't know, an island in the East River next to Manhattan, mm -hmm. and you're on Roosevelt Island meditating on Manhattan. Mm -hmm. So in a way, this feels like Fox in the sense that Roosevelt Island is this forgotten, right. unknown yeah. footnote. 
yeah. and Manhattan is the text, and yeah. you're standing in the footnote looking at the right. looking at the text. Yeah, so beautifully. He, I mean, you you said it beautifully, and also footnotes uh, because I'm sort of. I mean, it is dedication to those women who were in prison. Uh, in that prison in uh, Roosevelt Island, remember, like Ev- Emma Goldman? Like well, I, want, I would love you to talk about that because so we have the footnote and the yeah. text, which is connected to Fox, but you also have the idea of the mad woman being the fox and also being the writer. Mm-hmm. And Roosevelt Island is the place mm-hmm. of, of the quote-unquote mad, mm-hmm. mad woman. Mm-hmm. So who, tell us a little bit about some of the, the people who were... Uh, imprisoned on Roosevelt Island? I don't know much because um, I used only what I could use and that was a little tourist uh, sort of leaflet or a little book. But recently somebody told me that there is a um, historical research done and that there is a substantial book about Roosevelt Island. Um, I will certainly buy it. Um, It's a recent thing. But... um, um, really, I mean, it's a very interesting uh, p- little piece of land. It's a fleck, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a spot. Uh-huh. So it it's a visually it's a sort of a teaser. I mean, uh, Manhattan is in front of your nose, but you can't jump across. Right. Yes, you can reach it in four minutes if you use streetcar. You know, which is extremely amusing and beautiful to use that. So people of New York, my friends who were born in New York, they live in New York, they never ever went to Roosevelt Island. So thanks to me and my discovery, <laughs> they were bringing their kids and coming to see what is all of that, that miracle. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and also probably because of a stigma historical stigma, that island served as a quarantine at the beginning. Then it was the first um, uh, hospital for the... For smallpox. For smallpox. And then it was also a sort of a prison. It was more educational, re-educational center for small crimes, like alcoholism, uh, small thefts, uh, prostitution, and so on. Um, and it changed it, its um, function or its uh, through the time many times, and kind it of was like a fox changes its function. <laughs> right, it was the first uh, school for the nurses, in fact, in mm. in America. But the most amusing part of of that historical story, which is which is extremely uh, interesting, uh, is that there was that prison in the island and there were some uh, famous women which were imprisoned there. One of them was um, Emma Goldman. Then it was was, um, uh, uh, Billie Holiday. For prostitution. prostitution. Right. And then the the funniest part of all is that Mae West was imprisoned there because of her play, Sex, which went on Broadway in 1920, I think, and um, or 20s. 
And because of obscenity, she was imprisoned for four days. Because of a good behavior, <laughs> she stayed only seven days. Mm. But then she wrote an article about her experiences in that prison, published that article, and for the money for the honorarium, she founded the li prison library. Wow. Uh, at the island. And now, of course, the end of American Fictionary is that I'm imagining how my book is flying, uh, taken by the spirits of those glorious women. <laughs> I mean, if we think about true literature coming from uh, madmen, heretics, rebels, and skeptics, it's kind of the island of the American version of the Croatian witch, essentially. Like, this is where they would put educated, <laughs> right. dangerous women. Yes. Yeah, dangerous it all, women, yeah. Because yeah. you have you, the other people, you mentioned Emma Goldman, Billie Holiday, and Mae West, but Madame yeah. Restel for practicing abortion, Right. Ida Craddock for writing sexual manuals. Right. Recently, I, I've heard that there was a movie done uh, uh on her uh, biography. Yeah. You mentioned that last part of American Fictionary. It's mm -hmm. this really lovely mm. paragraph, and I was hoping maybe we could end with that. Okay. Um, I like that. I also think a moment about my book, about the person who picked it up on the late May afternoon in 2017 from the meditation steps on our island. Then I unleash my imagination in, and picture the ghosts of the women imprisoned here, lifting my book from the wooden steps. The book floats up, borne aloft by their breath, vibrating like a tiny glitter midair. I imagine the ghosts of the women, the anarchists, prostitutes, thieves, entertainers, alcoholics, beggars, losers, lunatics, patients, and outcasts who smuggle my book into, the, into another time, into the memorial prison library, the one founded by Mae West, with the money she was paid for the article she wrote about her brief stay there. I imagine my book traveling back through time. All the books of this world, even the ones that speak of the future, come to us from the past, whether this be the past of yesterday or one that reaches further back or a time completely apart from us. And my book born by the breath of the unhappy women of the past, drops onto the shelf of the prison library like a frozen sparrow arriving from the future. It was such a great pleasure to have you on Between the Covers, Dubrovka. It was my pleasure, too. <laughs> nice talk. Thank you. We were talking today to Dubravka Ugresic about her two latest books, Fox and American Fictionary from Open Letter Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. 
Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Dubrovka Ugresic's work can be found at dubrovkaugresic.com and at openletterbooks.org. The folks at Open Letter also have a podcast called Two Month Review, where they read slowly over 10 episodes the book Fox that we discussed today. Each episode is dedicated to a small part of the text and has a different guest on to discuss the section. I've also uploaded my conversation with Ellen Elias Bursich, Dubrovka's translator, to the bonus audio archive. Elias Bursich is the vice president of the American Literary Translators Association, a longtime friend and translator of Dubrovka, and has some great insights on her work. This joins bonus material by Carmen Maria Machado, Vicky Now, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.